Today I'm joined by Annika Molesworth, who is incredibly passionate about conveying the potency and the power that correct land management can have on climate change. She grew up on a family farm and very early joined the dots between the land, the climate and the food on the plate. Combined that with experiencing drought, bushfires and floods, she knew she had to do something. So she went down the route to become a agricultural scientist and now she speaks and writes from the heart and personal experience and science on building systems for resilience and systems for the future. I hope you enjoy my chat with Annika Molesworth. So how are you? Have you had a good week? Yeah, good week. Um, I'm I'm writing a book at the moment. Oh, good one. And yeah, and it's gone to the typesetter, and I actually just got the the um, first pages back this morning. So that's pretty exciting. So oh, congratulations! It's been a busy week. Yeah, thank you. Um, and this is my first book, so I've sort of been like um, reading blogs and watching YouTube videos of like how do you launch a book and like how best to promote it and all of those things so you might even have tips for me <laughs> <laughs> well but based on the success of my last book probably not um <laughs> but but have you self-published or are you with a publisher with a publisher so pan macmillan they actually Great. approached me um and asked would i be interested in writing a book about climate change and food systems right and i love writing so yeah Hopefully that'll give me some good guidance. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, your book will be, you know, with with any publisher, your book around launch will be hot property. So they have a, a marketing stream and a, and a um, publicity stream that promotes your book. And then I guess anything outside of that that you can do yourself by, you know, probably stuff that is probably within the... Um, you know, probably very familiar to you doing like events, small or large, you know, like just to, you know, bring awareness to the book and obviously social media obviously helps, but well, congratulations. That's very exciting. What's the, what's the book called? Are you allowed to share? Um, I don't know. Am I allowed to share at this stage? <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe not. Well, just between you and me. Um, so it's called Our Sunburnt Country. Our Sunburnt um, Country. Good so one. Yeah, so it's a reference from Dorothy McKellar's poem, um, and then also how that the the lines from her poem, um, which talk about her love of the landscape, have been quite misused recently by sort of politicians saying, well, you know, it's all natural climate variability and it's mm. nothing to worry about. Mm. Um, you know, it's always been a land of droughts and flooding rains. And human-induced climate change is versus like natural climate variability. So, um, yeah. I'm excited to get it out there. <laughs> Have you seen in the last sort of, because, you know, like 30 or 40 years ago when I guess the topic of climate change was sort of coming to the fore. Um, I mean, I, I remember doing a, an essay on it in one of my final exams at, you know, in year 12, you know, which not to, not to date me was a long time ago. And so it's been around for a, a while, but do you feel like the contingent of of naysayers or the contingent of um, people that sort of 
poo-pooing the whole idea of man-made climate change is reducing? Is that contingent shrinking in your mind? Yeah, absolutely, I think so. I mean, just looking back, you know, three years, five years ago, um, you know, the vocal opponents to climate change, even the concept of it, you know, the words of it, um, has really diminished. And I think, you know, people draw on strengths from each other. And, you know, as they see people coming forward and saying, you know, this is a serious issue, this is something I really care about, this is how it's impacting home, livelihoods, food, all of these things, people are sort of, I think, joining the dots and finding their own voice on the issue. Um, and, you know, the extreme weather events, of course, that we experience, you know, those horrific bushfires, the floods, the droughts, I think, you know, it's becoming less and less able to be denied that yeah. things are really becoming messed up at this point. Yeah. And do, do you, do you um, it's probably a big question to answer, but do you, do you have a, like a positive outlook for our future and our, you know, generations to come? Or do you see it as a, a, a bleak and catastrophic one? Look, it's interesting because being a, a scientist, a researcher who looks at the data and the graphs and the projections, like, it's pretty grim. Mm. Um, but then I look at how quickly we have moved in just the last few years, the conversations, how they've changed. Um, and for instance, I was one of the founding directors of Farmers for Climate Action, and that that formed five years ago. We have over 35,000 members yeah, in Australia. Right. Crazy. Like, the, the growth, the people who want to be involved in this, the people who are doing stuff out there, like, it just gives me so much hope. Um, and I really do believe, like, climate change is, it's a people problem. And as long as we, you know... If we have the the will and determination to do something about it, we can absolutely do something about it. Yeah. Um. It's it's that social tipping point which we're standing on the cusp right now. Right. Um. Of some really big changes. So I I am, I'm a, a, a realistic person, but I'm that also makes me optimistic. <laughs> yeah. And what what I personally find really. Cur uh, interesting, I guess. I mean, as as a species, we are adept and capable of incredible ingenuity and progression and technology and so in the last you know 20 30 years we've seen the proliferation of wind turbines and the advancement in solar energy and, and tidal energy and all that sort of stuff which i think moves the needle to some degree but who would have thought that the answer is underneath our feet and always has been and it's it's a natural solution rather than anything that we can engineer with our bare hands. It's actually, so I would love to like sort of flesh out the, the notion of, of regen. Obviously it's a topic that you know inside and out and I have some base level kind of understanding, but I think it would be great to sort of dissect exactly what it is for the, for the listeners because I think broadly there's a misunderstanding of the contribution that livestock makes to to um the greenhouse you know the greenhouse gas and the climate crisis um and so with with that misinformation there's a a, a reaction to that which predominantly drives people towards veganism 
which I don't necessarily think is the solution to you know human health, environmental health, or necessarily animal husbandry or you know animal welfare. I think I think it's a very sort of layered and sophisticated argument. You know, I, I always sort of get back to it's not about animal animal versus plant. It's about where either of those um, foods have come from. It's the it's the provenance of that. You know how the land was managed. So I guess if you if you can, um, I guess unpick exactly what regen is and how um, it could potentially sort of benefit us from a from a global uh, perspective. Sure, big question. I know. Sorry, sorry. I'm just thinking like, you know, well, I'll probably jump here, there, and everywhere. And there's lots of things that I want to, I want to ask you, but I think out the gate, let let's sort of. St- let's sort of put on the table what we're talking about and, and because there's lots of people that are hearing regen and I think we're getting to a point where we're getting the, the, there's obviously been an echo chamber for a number of years with you know people like yourself and lots of producers and farmers and advocates and I feel that that echo chamber is just starting to to leak into the the public consciousness and so people are going to start hearing it if, if pretty soon if they haven't already so I don't feel like there's a better person than you to kind of explain it. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so regenerative agriculture, it is about the regeneration of our ecosystems, our farming ecosystems and our food ecosystems. So obviously the farm ecosystem is it has so many different amazing components and it's it's the soil it's the water it's the biodiversity it's our livestock it's our crops it's the people it's community and so when we hear the term sustainable agriculture that's more about how do you sustain what we're doing for the long run regenerative agriculture on the other hand is how do we make something better than what we have now So it's about that regeneration of health and well-being in all those aspects, in the soil, in the livestock, in the community. And there is no clear definition of what regenerative agriculture is and no um, recipe manual that one could follow for every farm. It will look different on my farm versus my neighbour's farm versus anyone else out there in (laughs) Australia or beyond. And that's what makes it you know, complex and sophisticated, as you say, but also incredibly beautiful and creative because it's about me looking at my farm landscape and understanding, you know, the life in the soils, what water resources I have at hand, identifying the native species here, um, looking after the welfare of my animals and making sure that I'm doing the very best I possibly can to make sure that this health and well-being is is improved, is increased. And so that's, I guess, the overall, you know, vision of regenerative agriculture, that we do something better today than we did yesterday. And there's not going to be an endpoint. It's going to be a continual evolution as we learn more, as we study more, as we lean close to the land and we listen to it and we learn from it. And then it's also, I think, about the sharing of ideas and concepts. It's about farmers talking with one another. It's about farmers talking with nutritionists, chefs, the general public, 
um, and working out like what is the best for human health and for planetary health. And so, and so, can you explain the the sort of actual mechanism, um, like how it actually benefits um, the you know, the, you know, when we're talking about the climate change and regen, they sort of go hand in hand. But for many people, the 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 relationship is a bit of a an anomaly, or there's a bit of confusion. If you can dissect the me mechanics of that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So, um, let's focus on the carbon system in the the agriculture system itself. So, um, farmers manage this huge landscape here in Australia, and so we obviously are managing the soils, and the soils and the vegetation are carbon stores. And so when we look after the vegetation and the soils, that means that there's greater carbon concentration in those places. When they're poorly managed, as in when we overgraze uh, grasslands, when we remove trees, when we till soil, carbon that has been stored is released as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is the, the greatest contributor of climate change. It's one of the, the main our greenhouse gases up there, which is destabilizing our climate system. So the idea with regenerative agriculture and the carbon cycle is how do we make sure that we're not releasing that carbon to the atmosphere more than we want to? And also how do we draw down carbon that we've already put up in the atmosphere in excessive quantities? How do we capture it? How do we draw it back down? And so that's looking at, you know, um, planting more, tree species that's looking at um, how do we improve carbon concentration in our soils? What does that mean for a, a farming practice that might mean reducing tillage or going to a no tillage system? And tillage is obviously the plowing and the cultivation of soil, which is, increases uh, microbial respiration and the release of carbon dioxide. Uh, there's also, you know, a whole bounty of other um, practical methods that farmers can do on farms, whether it's, you know, uh, integrating a long living tree species alongside perennial crops, whether it's looking at different feed for livestock to reduce methane emissions, whether it's looking at fertilizer practices to reduce nitrous oxide emissions, which come from fertilizers such as urea, a nitrogen fertilizer, which is incredibly important for growing crops. But how do we, you know, move away from synthetic fertilizers more to uh, natural organic fertilizers. Mm. So it's all these concepts. And again, like it will look different for every agricultural industry, every sector, every different geography um, and every farmer, because every farmer has different capacity in terms of finances, labors, um, access to new information. Um, so yes, it's a beautiful, complex system. <laughs> so it, is it sort of binary in the sense that if you're following a regenerative code, if you like, is it binary that there can't be any chemical intervention, i.e. pesticides, fertilisers, herbicides? Is it a strict sort of no, or is it sort of whatever works in that moment for that farmer or producer? Or the, the moment they use some sort of intervention, then they you know, undo all the good that they've done. Well, you know, I, I can't imagine mm. that being the case, but um, 
yeah, interesting to, to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I guess with regenerative agriculture, because there is no strict definition and guideline of what it is, it's more about, okay, well, what what are the best practices that you can employ? Um, And how can you work towards these best practices too? Because when we become too prescriptive and sort of saying, you know, you're either in the box or you're out the box, you know, you're a good guy or you're a bad guy. Yeah. That doesn't help. That doesn't bring farmers along. That doesn't bring community along. That's it's a fragmentation and um, yeah. alienating almost uh, idea. And so regenerative agriculture is more loose and dynamic because of these reasons. Because they want people to be looking and learning from the landscape and wondering, asking questions. You know, how can I do this better? How can I improve my soil carbon? How can I look after the insect, the plant, the animal biodiversity uh, in the best way possible? And as we know, you know, every season is different on the farm. Markets go up and down. The weather goes up and down. And so farmers have to be incredibly adaptive um, and working with those conditions. And so something you do today or, you know, this week might not be actually possible next week or next month or next year um and so yes that i i would say regenerative agriculture has sort of loose boundaries but it it has best practices yeah right um and if we can go back to the to the methane just quickly obviously you you were describing how um, carbon dioxide is the major contributor to climate change and i just think that there's so much talk of the the contribution that cattle make um through the the belching and the farting um and methane now i've heard you know this going back to my essay when i was 18 you know this was a, a major part of the essay that i was writing how you know livestock contribute um and so we probably need to have a more plant-based diet and probably since then till today there's just been pros and cons thrown you know statements and research thrown out via media outlets and it's just really confusing so it'd be great to kind of break down actually what i i guess i guess there's there's a there's a secondary layer to that so we need to break down a the extent to which methane contributes to to the climate change and then the secondary question or the secondary yeah what, what we need to look at after that is like grass-fed finished cattle versus feedlot cattle and how that differs or how they differ in terms of their contribution. Mm, yeah, so methane is in farming systems generally comes from, as you say, belching of ruminant animals. And so ruminants are animals with four parts of their stomach, including the rumen, um, and this includes sheep, cattle, goats, deer. And um, when these animals, they eat their, their forage, their, they graze on the vegetation, the microbes um, in their gut break it down and they belch out methane. And methane is a, a very important and strong um, greenhouse gas. And so this is something that we are very conscious of as livestock producers. I'm a sheep producer out in far western New South Wales. I forgot to mention this at the start of the program. (laughs) Um, And so 
we we look as livestock producers of how do we actually reduce methane emissions from our systems um and it's going to be different you know what feed is available for livestock um the genetics of that livestock the different uh gut microbiome it, mm. it, it all influences the amount of methane that's going to be released and there's a lot of really fascinating research being done in this area about you know improving genetics of livestock and um the feed quality that is going to livestock to actually reduce that methane emission so that that's really in, incredibly exciting and i think it goes to show why it's so important that we have investment into research and farmers working very closely with scientists so we can continually improve our practices and learn like how do we as people like best work with our planet in the most responsible way yeah right um so in terms of methane output um does the research sort of suggest that there's more with a f you know feedlot diet versus grass-fed finished um, I don't actually have a, a clear answer for you on that. Um, That's sorry. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> I should have done some reading beforehand. Um, yeah, look, as mentioned, you know, methane, um, contribution is due to a variety of factors, whether it's yeah. Yeah, the genetics of the animal, whether it's the feed type, um, the environmental conditions, all of that influence how much methane is being released. Um, and so, yeah, I hesitate to um, yeah. make a broad brush answer. Yeah, on no, it. that's all right. That's all right. And, and you mentioned that your, your land, where, where, whereabouts is your farm? So I'm in far western New South Wales on Willakali country. Right. And if you haven't been out here, it is a stunningly beautiful part of the world of ruby red sands and sapphire blue skies. Oh, and wow. I wake up to a chorus of corellas every morning. Right. Um, yeah, and take my Kelpie dogs for a walk along my creek. And oh, you're living it's a beautiful the dream. place. And so is that the, the farm that you grew, grew up on or is this something that you've... Right. Yeah, so my parents actually purchased this farm when I was 12 years old and I was originally from Melbourne and never gave much thought to my food, you know. If it, it was there on the on the plate in front of me and tasted good, then that was all I was concerned about. Yeah. And then, um, you know, then spending my later childhood years on the farm and growing up with this incredible natural environment around me and feeling the real privilege of actually growing food that goes to nourish people, it just opened my eyes to what the food system really is. And the year 2000, when my parents purchased the farm, was the start of the millennium drought, a 10-year drought that we experienced here. And that was what really propelled my interest in climate change. What does, you know, this increased frequency and intensity of extreme weather events actually mean for the next generation of food producers like myself? And so the land that your, your mum and dad bought in 2000, so that's 20, 21 years ago, did you inherit land that had been intensively farmed or did you inherit land that, you know, had been worked holistically? Like, what, what was the condition of your farm when, you, when your mum and dad bought it? The farm was in, you know, reasonably good condition. I would say it was a conventionally farmed 
farm for this district, you know, merino sheep, Hereford cattle. Right. Um, it's native vegetation out here, so chenopod, saltbush, wattle, um, mulga trees, gum trees. That's the kind of landscape out here. Uh, and then when we bought, and the first 10 years, little to no rainfall because of the drought, I suddenly had my eyes opened of how fragile this land really is. You know, when the rain stops falling, when the vegetation doesn't grow, when you're trucking off livestock because you can't feed them, the, the water's evaporating from your dam, you're watching people leaving your rural community. I was like, my goodness, this is what climate change actually means to the food system. It's impacting the landscape, the animals, the, the livelihood, the income generation from the farm. It's also impacting the community out here. And so that's what really propelled me to study everything I possibly could about how climate change is impacting the food system. Um, and then for me later to become, uh, you know, quite an advocate for action because this is an issue that we can't ignore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got quite an intimidating resume, I have to say. I started doing my stalking. I was like, oh, wow, like she is a, you're a go-getter, like you're you're a, you're a, um, a real champion of this arena. It's fantastic. Good on you. Well, thank you. Um, but I, I think it comes from a place of love and respect. I, I look out the window of the land that I am so privileged to stand and work on, and I feel such a connection to it and sense of belonging and a sense of respect that this this land is in my care at this point in time and I have to do whatever I can to look after it. And I look at the science and I look at the projections and it's pretty dire for this place. And so if I don't speak for it, who is? If I don't do the best that I can to look after my livestock, who, who is going to do that? Mm. And so even though I'm, you know, a very introverted person and I'd love to just be in the, the sheep yards talking to sheep all day um, <laughs> that's that's not going to tackle climate change yeah right. and so I will share my story and I will you know advocate for greater action on climate change within the farming community because that's what we actually need well I think I think you've hit it the nail on the head where when when you're talking about love and connection to nature I mean that sort of is the essence I guess the cradles regen farming, right? Because you're working, you know, you're working with nature. You know, your nature is your business partner, mate, as opposed to conventional farming or intensively, you know, intensive farming. You're kind of, you're pushing nature away at every, every junction, aren't you? You know, you're putting pesticides and herbicides and, you know, for, like you're not, it's almost like your the soil and your property is is purely a commodity, and let's just, you know, get as many, you know, get get the biggest yields that we can, rather than sort of taking in all those things that you mentioned: love, connection, nature, community, and let's foster a holistic, connected, not just farm, but you know, community. I think I think that's, you know, that's what weaves through regen farming i don't i don't yeah yeah i was just gonna say i just don't see that you know that those elements in the other form of farming the other form of farming i mean i'm sure we've all seen the documentaries on netflix is a 
is a grotesque form of farming like we've we've it's evolved and morphed into something quite horrific, you know, those, mm. you know, those f the feedlots. I mean, when, when I think of feedlots, I, I think predominantly the states. I think they've got a pretty abhorrent um, methodology when it comes to particularly, you know, cows. But it's, it's so, so far removed from that love and the connection that, that you've been talking about. Yes. Um, I think it's also important to ask why those systems have evolved. Um, why are we seeing um, what you mentioned there as like the, the intensive farming, the application of synthetic fertilizers, of pesticides, of tillage of the soils uh, that drive to produce more, larger quantities, but of less quality mm. and that are potentially doing long-term damage to the landscapes. And I don't think it is, you know, as these things are never are, a clear, you know, good versus evil mm. thing. Um, and I think it's also important to look right along the food system and actually what's driving these kind of practices and, you know, those kind of farms to be set up. I, I go to the supermarket and I see um, imported food, mm. uh, highly packaged foods in cans and wrapped in plastics. I see advertisements on TV going down, 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 get your price down, the cheapest possible price. That's what you as the consumer not, not, want. Not to name any names though, hey. <laughs> not, but but this, is, this is what consumers, this is what the urban, you know, 90%, 99% of the Australian <laughs> population who do not we are being encouraged to eat out of season food highly packaged and processed imported from a long way away and being encouraged to want it at the cheapest possible price all year how is a farmer supposed to put aside um revegetation plots and conservation reserves when they can barely break even how can they you know truck their oranges to the, the market when it's cheaper to import them from California. Mm. Um, you know, I've lived in, in rural towns where I walk into the supermarket and there's Californian oranges on the shelf and I drive out and I see the farmers plowing their oranges into the ground because they Whoa. literally cannot sell them, that wow. it's more expensive for them to truck them to that supermarket. Wow. And that is just mind-warping to me. Yeah. And so it's not... <clears throat> an easy answer of I believe that okay this hang on Annika I've lost you one second one second can you hear me Uh, can you hear me? Evil. Yeah. Working from my end. I think I've got you again. 
Oh, you've got me again. I've got you again. So you're on a beautiful oh. roll then, and then, then it all went all disconnected. So sorry. <laughs> yeah, I could see and hear you quite clearly. So I don't know yeah, if it was my end or not. Yeah, I don't know. Um, do, do you want to pick yeah. pick that up that again, or have you, is, it, is it gone into the ether? <laughs> um, I think, you know, the take-home message from that rant was that um you know everyone is involved in the food system you know and i think we all need to look at the meals on our plate and ask questions of it you know Mm. where has this food come from what price am i paying for this food what kind of food system am i encouraging Mm. because yeah i don't believe that um most farmers you know, a lot of farmers. I don't believe that there's, you know, inherently good farmers and evil yeah. farmers who are out to destroy the soil and, yeah. you know, all of that. I think there are larger complexity in this system that we have set up and we have encouraged. Um, and that's what we need to actually really, like, look at and evaluate and go, okay, well, what is driving bad behaviour? How can we penalise it? bad behavior how can we incentivize good behavior what do we need to do as a as a whole society because we all eat food we are all part of this problem we are all part of the solutions so um have you seen because obviously for us to move in that direction and, and change um change at the i guess the production end there needs to be a shift in attitude by the consumer, by you and I, how do you see that manifesting and, and do have you seen change over the last couple of years in that regard? Yeah, so I would love people when they, you know, dish up their dinner at night and put it on their plate in front of it to have that respect for that food that I feel as a farmer, to actually think about, wow, like there has been a lot of time, energy, resources, soil nutrients, um, water resources that have gone into producing that food on my plate. Mm. And so I'm going to make sure that I finish it, that I don't scrape off half of it into the bin. Um, And when I go and make my food purchases, I'm going to make those, you know, that, that those conscious purchases that produce a better food system. So I would love people to yeah, when they look at their food, actually reflect on the landscapes that it came from. Um, you know, I'm terribly lucky that I live in rural Australia and I, I can look at these beautiful landscapes and I encourage people to go out and, you know, mm. you know, just marvel at the natural world and realise how fragile and how beautiful it is. And food comes from that landscape. Yeah. Um, so in regards to your question of how do we actually... Um, you know, build that sense of respect and love for food, that desire to celebrate food, not to waste it. I think it's a, it's a variety of things. I think it's, you know, it's articulating what our vision is as individuals, as a society. I want a food system which does nourish people properly and is also good for the health of the planet. Um and so then we need to articulate a better narrative of how do we actually get there? 
well, that means, you know, maybe paying more price, you know, a higher price for our food so we mm. can make sure that farmers have the financial capacity to look after their lands, mm. to try new practices. Um, and I think it's about people really realising that, yes, these problems like climate change are big. They can feel very daunting and overwhelming. But, you know, it's up to us as individuals to actually, you know, do something. And even if it feels like just a small little step, like it causes a ripple and it's that collective momentum that actually causes us to actually change a society as a whole and redesign these systems like the food system into something better to actually achieve that vision that we can articulate. Yeah, I, I think we, where we're at now, um, I mean, we're in such a privileged period of time in which we can walk into any supermarket on any street corner, pretty much wherever we are within Australia, and have access to fresh produce. Um, it's a very privileged, you know, it's a privilege. But what yeah. comes with that is is unconscious consumerism. We don't, you know, we we just reach into the 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 fridge and pull out what we want and. Um, put that in our basket or our trolley and we take that home, we cook it up and we eat it and we, you know, carry on. We don't, there needs to be an intersection where you think exactly what you're, you're describing, where you've, you're mindful of where that food, whether it's, a, you know, corn on the cob or a, or a T-bone steak, we need to be mindful and appreciative of, of the steps that that's gone to get onto your plate. And I think that that's not easy given that a lot of our shopping and our, and our decisions are unconscious. It's hard to kind of then, you know, weave in that thought process to be mindful. But I think it's, I think it's changing. I think it's, I'm, I'm pretty positive. There seems to be this growing consciousness of people wanting, wanting to know where their food, you know, I go to a local farmer's market every Sunday and it's packed. Yeah, you know, there's, there's like in, independent growers and producers from from meat to you know to eggs to pickles and olives and you know and there's clearly enough people that warrant that market to be there week in week out, which yeah. tells us something, I believe, and that's just in one suburb in Sydney. You know, that's replicated across the country, and I think I think yeah. it's a, I think it's a telling sign that we're heading in the right direction. Exactly. And I don't think, you know, this isn't about making people, you know, feel bad or exhausted of like, no, oh, there's all. so many issues to deal with. It's about just looking at, okay, well, what small tweaks can I make in my life? Like, is it, you know, going to the farmer's market and actually connecting with farmers and actually understanding the food story to a greater depth? Is it, you know, just selecting not food that are wrapped in plastic and styrofoam and all this excess nonsense packaging it's choosing something that you can put in a, a paper bag or a, a cardboard box is it you know making sure that you're selecting seasonal nutrient dense foods instead of highly processed foods which you know are, are not good for your body but they're the mm. quick thing you pick off the shelf yeah and it's just making you know those small decisions every day when we when we eat and purchase food um and they do add up and you do sort of develop habits over a period of time and when you start doing one thing then you can sort of start moving to the next and then you realize 
you're just living that way and yeah. it feels a lot better yeah and, and i think we we can obviously change our own personal habits but we can in not impose that that's the wrong word but we can help to influence all the way down yeah. the chain by speaking to our butcher or our fishmonger our local supermarket owner cafe owners chefs we can ask you know where does that t-bone come from or you know and i think once we start to to see that chain from paddock to to your table or your plate i think that really sort of helps to you know give that holistic view of you know okay well something's been grown and energy's been put into it something's died and you know let's yeah. and it's con come down the supply chain and now it's sitting on my plate um yeah. I, I strongly sort of advise for a long time i've been an advocate of asking asking those people on your high street you know whether it's the butcher or your or your the chef at the restaurant you know ask where it because that 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 then sends the ripple back up the chain um, absolutely yeah. i think that's a great idea and i mean you can even do it in your home encouraging people around you you know when you're recycling things or you're setting up a, a worm farm or a veggie plot and just you know telling the members of your family this is why you're doing it maybe speaking to your kids school and sort of asking yeah. you know what's happening with the food waste have you guys thought about setting up a compost heap or a worm farm or a veggie garden i mean we can do things all around us in our homes schools businesses as you say and you know going down to the local butcher and having conversations with them yeah in your experience as a, as a regen producer have you found there to be challenges um with supply chain like getting your produce from point a to point b because i from my small experience that i have um I, i'm bringing out a um a regen meat box product so i'm taking a cow from our my, my in-laws have got a farm up on the mid north coast new south wales so i'm taking a um, a cow from the the paddock and i'm going to be delivering it you know a five kilo um, medley sort of box onto the doorstep. So obviously, given given those two endpoints, there's lots of links in the chain for me to get that cow from the paddock to. And I've found it a real challenge to because the the system, the the food system within those links, is geared for, um, I guess, large wholesale intensive kind of production whereas i'm not i'm you know i'm going to start with one cow so then i've got to find an abattoir that's happy to take one cow and then i've got to find a food you know a, a freight that's happy to take one cow and it's 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 been a real challenge um i think i'm kind of there but um you know there's been a couple of points where i'm like oh this is too hard like this this system you know for people who are regen producers I guess you're almost carving out your own supply chain. Have you, have you found that? Have you found challenges within that? Yeah, and definitely, like you say, um, you know, speaking with yeah the smaller producers, the regen producers, and such. It's yeah, there's challenges with the food system at the moment. It is not designed for yeah. you know 
a planetary healthy <laughs> food system. It is. It has been designed for you know the mass production for these really long transport and yeah. distribution systems. Um, you know, which has been lovely. It means I can eat blueberries out of season and asparagus from Argentina. And, like, that's <laughs> that's been lovely for a while. But, um, you know, now we're really feeling the impacts of what that has done to our planet in yeah. terms of a deteriorating climate, you know, suffering rivers, deforestation, mass species extinction. We are really seeing the impacts of humans misbehaving not treating the planet properly or fairly and creating systems that are just so totally out of alignment with what nature can sustain. And so we absolutely need to change these systems. We need to be looking at, yes, as you say, smaller, um, you know, smaller systems, shorter systems, uh, better high quality systems that focus on nutrient value, not mass production of low nutrient goods. Mm. Uh, something that really celebrates the natural world and looks after the trees and the rivers and the native species that are out there and farmers are working alongside of. So, um, yes, <laughs> I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, right. Do, do you find that there's a, as a, um, a constant rebuttal to your sort of vision and, and view on food production that we can't feed, you know, the, our community or Australia or the, the global community with that methodology of farming. Like, I, I've heard that a number of times. I just wonder whether you, you sort of press up against that on a, on a regular basis. Yeah... Look, I would say, mm, look, it, I would disagree. I would say those people are not using their imagination <laughs> if they say that we cannot feed people on planetary-friendly systems. Yeah. I would also say they're not looking at the horrific damage we are currently doing with, this, with the system now. Um, so we need to move away from this short-term mindset mm. and this you know, idea that everything's going okay because everything is not going okay a few of us in this world are very privileged and very lucky that we have we are living a life of comfort that we do have full stomachs that we do have oh my goodness you know we can scrape food into the bin no worries mm, there's a lot of people in this world who do not have that fortune um and if we actually open our eyes and look at the t deteriorating environment around us we will see that Things are changing incredibly rapidly in a very short period of time. Yeah, right. So what we are doing is not working. We cannot sustain this, and we cannot pretend that we can do this long into the future <laughs> at all. Um, so yes, we we have to change the food system, what it looks like, how food is being produced, right through to how food is being consumed. Mm. Um, and yes, we're going to have to get creative about that too. Yeah. We're going to have to use our imaginations. We're going to have to think of a better vision. And we can do that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Absolutely, we can do that. Well, I think the, the World Health Organization have, have claimed that there's about 60 harvests left, that, you know, good quality topsoil, which is, you know, we, we have to move now. Like, that's, that's going to go in the blink of an eye. Like, we have to make change now. 
Exactly. And if we just look at food waste for one second, I mean, we waste enough food to feed three billion people. If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter of climate change. Yeah, wow. I mean, if we just stopped wasting food, that would do a, a lot of good things. Yeah, right. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I just want to ask one more question. Actually, there'll probably be a couple, but let, let's say one for now. Um, where would be where where would you point someone as a really good resource obviously discounting your book because it's not out yet but um where you know someone who's sort of got their ears pricked and looking over the fence they're intrigued by the whole holistic um food food system like what where would you point them like what what's a great resource for for that have a look at Farmers for Climate Action because right. they've got a terrific website with um, a whole lot of really good resources there that you can learn about soil carbon, um, you know, cost of food, better, you know, supporting farmers, what climate change actually means to food production. They also run webinars nearly monthly and they are incredibly active on all the social media platforms. So if you're wanting to learn more and keep up to date with what climate change means for the food system and how you can help out farmers, um, definitely head along to Farmers for Climate Action. And uh, just on top of that, when when did you say your book was out? My book is out at the end of August. End of August. Okay, I'll keep an eye out for that. All right, well, thank you so much for your, for your time and energy and all your wisdom. I really appreciate appreciate your time today but also you know you you fly in the flag for all this stuff it's it's so important thanks so much scott it's been a great conversation with you all right all the best okay thank you Take care.